Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have gathered us here together this morning. We thank you more than that, that you have spoken to us. That you have not left us wondering what it is you desire of us. But you have spoken clearly through your word. And so Lord, I ask that your spirit, he would be here this morning. That as the word is declared, that he would bring life. That as the word is preached, that he would build up his people here at this church. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Throughout this book, uh, Paul's been offering us this big picture of Christ and, and who he is and what he has done. The one who made everything. The one who inherits everything. The one who's holding everything together. The one who is the head of all authority in the world. And the one who is reconciling all things by the blood of his cross. And as we start to shift here, and really the shift has been happening for a bit, um, Paul takes this big view of Christ and he starts applying it to different areas of life. He applied it to the area of philosophy and ideologies. He said, you want wisdom, you want knowledge, all of that is stored for you in Christ. Christ is the foundation of that all. He applied it, we saw last week, to the imagery of the Old Testament. All of that is these shadows given to us, and the substance belongs to the person and the work of Christ. And now he's going to apply it to the realm of personal holiness. And he's going to continue that in the next couple or the next chapter, really chapter three. And he's going to be answering the question: How do people change? How do we improve? And what does that even look like? And the idea of personal change is really uh, somewhat of a controversial topic today. Is it even something that we want? Is change even a desirable outcome? I mean, if there is no right and wrong in this universe, is there, if there is no universal standard that everyone is supposed to align to, uh, then really, find your truest self, follow your heart, be all that you want to be to yourself, and any other change that is forced upon you is really just oppressive. And that's what much of our world thinks today. Also, if you're just a biochemical machine, perhaps if you take the right pill, that will formulate the change that you need within yourself. And again, even the most recent studies in these last couple of weeks tell you, yeah, that doesn't really work. Biology matters, chemicals matter, but they can't do everything. You're more than just the chemicals that amass themselves in your body. Throughout history, many have offered a path to change, to cast off whatever it is that's hindering you. There's this way for self-improvement. You just have to look at the various schools of thought within pop psychology today. If you walk into a bookstore, you will find entire shelves devoted to self-help. How to make a better you. You can find that on the farthest wings of the left and you can find it on the farthest wings of the right. Take, for example, Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Here are the 12 rules you need to change yourself. And of course, there's an amount of uh, common grace and wisdom in there that can help you to an extent, but it all amounts to little more than rearranging the chairs on a sinking ship. Such attempts and tricks are often rooted more in human tradition and wisdom than they are about actual truth as God has spoken. And religion in particular is especially ripe for the involving or the taking in of human tradition. 
In this passage, Paul addresses the false teachers. He's really been dealing with them throughout uh, the entire book to this point, but he's, he's really getting to the, the, the fine point here. As they have taken parts of the Old Testament law, and they're mixing them with human tradition, and they're coming up with these rules that everybody in the church of Colossae needs to follow. And Paul wants you to know that those rules are human tradition, yes, but they find their ultimate uh, source in elemental spirits, that is, demonic spirits. These are not just purely human tradition, there's something spiritual behind them. And so we have to ask ourselves some questions. How can this be? Is the problem the law itself? Is the problem God's law? Well, if you read your Old Testament, you'll find that a lot of the Old Testament is spent praising God's law. God's law is holy. God's law is perfect. It's a lamp unto my feet. If you know anything about the ancient religions of the world, you would know that often they didn't give their people a law. In fact, they had to try to manipulate and control their gods through various different sacrifices and and divination practices to figure out what is it that this God actually wants from me. The God of Israel, the God who created everything, wasn't like that. He put it in black and white. This is what I want from you. He has spoken. And so the Old Testament praises God's law. That's not the problem. God tells us what the problem is is in, in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. He says, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. The problem isn't God's law. The problem is is that man takes God's law, adds to it, and corrupts it. Jesus does the same thing with the Pharisees in Mark chapter chapter 7, verse 5, 6, and 7. The Pharisees say this to Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So here's the problem. You're not following our traditions. The tradition of the elders. Why are your disciples doing that? And Jesus responds by pointing back to that prophecy in Isaiah. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The Pharisees saw God's law. They saw that it was good, but they knew the history of Israel, that Israel kept breaking that law anyway. So they figured, what we're going to do is we're going to put up these fences and these hedges around God's law to make sure that nobody actually breaks the law. It didn't work. They thought that they could improve upon God's law, make it better. And that's kind of what's at the heart of Paul's rebuke here. We need to note he is not rebuking the law of God, but he's rebuking the distortion of it. He's rebuking those who add to it through the wisdom of men and the doctrine of elemental spirits, that is, demons. And these distortions have what he calls the appearance of wisdom. They appear to make sense. I don't know if you've ever formulated a plan and said, I'm going to do this. And then about halfway through it, you realize that that was stupid. <laughs> like, yeah, I thought this was going to work out great, but it really, it really didn't. That's happened to me more than once, especially with home improvement projects. Yeah, this was going to be easy. 15 trips later to Menards, I realize I have no idea what I've actually gotten myself into. Much in the same way, Paul says here, is that this, this can look religious. This can look like it's going to work, but it doesn't. It has no power. We can call this different things. We can call it legalism. 
We can call it uh, what Paul does here, asceticism. It appears to be wise, but it is powerless to enact actual change. And the real change comes from somewhere else. So that's what we're going to spend our time looking at here this morning. And the first thing I want us to note is the dangers of asceticism. That is what Paul is rebuking here, and that's not a term that you just hear in everyday uh, conversation. What does it mean? What is asceticism and why is it bad? Well, we're going to read a bit here in verse 18, 20, 21, and 23. If you read the context here, you get to understand what is Paul actually rebuking. He says this, Let no one disqualify you, verse 18, insisting on asceticism in the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Skip to verse 20. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why then, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not touch, uh, do not taste. These things indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So the word here, translated by the ESV as asceticism, in the NIV, if you have that translation, it will call it false humility. The CSV also translates it as false humility. Other translations will translate it as self-denial. Self-denial. And this is where we really do need to be careful. Because there are forms of self-denial that are good. There are forms of self-denial that are commanded in Scripture. Jesus says, if you want to follow him, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. He also commands that the first great command is to love God more than anything else. That means you have to deny yourself to an extent so that you can love God. And oh yeah, you also need to love your neighbor as yourself. So to be a Christian is to some extent to practice self-denial and to reorder your priorities. You are not a hedonist. That is someone who makes life all about me and getting as much pleasure out of life as I can possibly get. And yet, since that is how hedonism, how most unbelievers live their life, it can feel holy. It can feel righteous then to deny all physical enjoyments and pleasures. We can start to look at them as the problem and it is they that need to be avoided. And this is just as devious a lie as hedonism. It turns this idea of the holy Christian into a cranky person who's fearing that someone somewhere might just be having a good time. Brothers and sisters, that's not holiness. So let me offer a tentative definition of what Paul's getting at here when he says asceticism is bad. What is asceticism? It is the idea that the physical, especially physical enjoyment, is either less than or just flat out wrong. Let me say it again. Asceticism is the idea that the physical, physical realm, physical body, physical enjoyments, are less than or wrong. That is what Paul is rebuking you. It, it is devaluing the goodness of creation. And the reason that is a problem, because when you look at creation and you devalue it, what you're actually doing is devaluing the Creator. You're rejecting creation. Hedonism is the opposite of that. Hedonism is overvaluing of the physical as it becomes the chief and only goal of life. Physical pleasures in life are primary and all there really is. 
and this is in the, the opposite of that, hedonism is physical, is bad, and needs to be escaped. So Paul's warning here, especially in verse 18, is that as you become enamored with attacking the physical, that actually makes you more physical, more sensuous of mind. It doesn't deal with the heart of the problem. The more you try to get rid of something, the more you tend to think about it. For example, if I were to say to you, don't think about elephants. You're all now thinking about elephants. The more you place focus on getting rid of that thing and labeling it as wrong, the more you're more likely to obsess over it. Church history is literally full of examples of this failure. Asceticism has a way of working itself into religion because it looks like it makes sense. For example, the early monks in Rome would often flee Rome because of its debauchery and its sexual sin. They would go lock themselves in caves in the desert. This is largely where we get the idea of hermits from. And they would live in the desert and then they would write these things where they would realize that the dancing women they were fleeing came with them into the caves. They were stuck in their mind. It didn't actually work. One of my favorite stories in church history is that of the medieval monks, a few hundred years later, that tried to rid themselves of their sexual urges and desires. Uh, they decided that the solution was to strip themselves naked and run naked through thorn bushes. Because that's a good way to deal with problems. This obsession with being rid of the physical, when God created us to be physical, is hopeless. And it leads to greater abuses. It should not surprise us then at the horrors that we've seen uh, in the Catholic Church abuse scandal. Their view of the priesthood is utterly at fault. That doesn't mean other branches, including Protestants like us, haven't had our problems. But the idea that priests shouldn't marry attracts a certain type of individual to the priesthood, and it also fosters, well, it fosters exactly what Paul is warning about here. The more you try to get rid of that problem, the greater the desire grows in your mind. You see, one of the great things that the Protestant reformers brought forward as they rebelled against the Catholic Church, whether it be Luther or Calvin, it was that they argued for the spirituality of all of life. They argued uh, for the rightness of sexual relations in marriage. They argued that you could serve God in the priesthood or you could serve God as a shoemaker. All of life was spiritual and good and holy if we were obeying God. And so Scripture again and again condemns the false holiness of asceticism. We saw it when we walked through the book of Ecclesiastes. The problem, the solution to the problem of our obsession with things is not to get rid of the things, but is to receive them as gifts from God, not as the end goal of life. Paul makes the exact same point here in 1 Timothy 4 that he's making here in Colossians 2. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. That should make you sit up and pay attention. The teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What do these people do? Who forbid marriage. Catholic Church forbids marriage of its priests. Who require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. 
For it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer. These things are created by God and they reflect His goodness. Do not try to out-holy God. You can't do that. Creation reflects His goodness. To reject that is to embrace the teaching of demons. John Calvin put it succinctly, in despising the gifts, we insult the giver. In despising the gifts, we insult the giver. And the true danger of asceticism is not that um, it comes from man, but that it ultimately, as Paul says, comes from demons or elemental spirits. Joe Rigney, the pastor of Bethlehem College and Seminary, puts it this way. He says, demons love to portray God as miserly. What does that mean, miserly? It means stingy, as a cosmic killjoy. That God somehow created this world with all of this beauty and all of these things to be enjoyed. And he created those things just to tempt you and to say, ha ha, you can't have it. That's how Satan wants you to think about God. That's how he wants you to think about being holy. But it is a lie, Paul says, straight from the pit of hell. God created good things to be enjoyed, and in enjoying them, to manifest His goodness to us. And it's very easy for us to take the good things and to make them into our gods, and we must guard against that. But it's also very easy to overcorrect and get rid of the good things. And to say God messed up. So Paul's commentary on these practices are that they appear to be righteous and wise, but they aren't. Look at verse 23, the first part. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. This is dangerous because it looks impressive. Right? And say, hey, you know how holy I am? I fast ten times a week. You know how holy I am? Look at all these things I just refuse to do and to have a good time with. It looks impressive. Look at how much self-control I have because I don't do anything fun. It can sound really spiritual, but Paul says that is self-made religion. It's made up. It's worthless. Again, Joe Rigney on this. His book, uh, The Things of Earth, is where this quote comes from, and I highly recommend it to you. It's a wonderful, wonderful book on this topic. To pursue holiness... By stiff-arming created pleasures appears wise. Ascetic religion and severity to the body may impress lots of people, but their value in promoting godliness is null. The reason should be obvious. Sin is not in the stuff. Let me say that again. Sin is not in the stuff. Sin resides in human hearts. And thinning out creation just makes us thin idolaters. We exchange indulgent sins for ascetic ones, but rearranging the decks on the chairs of the Titanic doesn't alter the ship's path. Asceticism doesn't work because the sin is in us, not in the things that God has created. It is we who corrupt the goodness of creation. And so we need to be careful here. Right? So when, when Paul says, hey, this form of asceticism is bad, don't do that, I want you to understand what he's not saying. Okay? He's not saying that never use wisdom or propriety in figuring out how to live well. He, never says, he doesn't say don't put up any guards or fences in your life. If you have a weak area in your life, you should put up some fences and some, some guards. If you've struggled with alcohol, 
then it's not a good idea for you to go out to a bar on Friday night. This is not what Paul is rebuking. Sometimes we build walls around our lives because of our own sinful tendencies and so that we can guard our hearts to strengthen them. But we don't locate the problem in the object. We locate the problem internally. It's us. And so Paul is not saying here, for another example, that it's pure legalism to say that a young man and a young woman who are interested in each other shouldn't spend time alone together. That's not what he's critiquing. Young men and young women have desires. Now, if you locate those, the problem in the actual desires themselves, now you're going too far. The desire for sexual intimacy is not the problem. Sex is not the problem. And far too often, Christianity has talked about as if that's the problem. The problem is the desire that we misorder and distort and place in the wrong area. So Paul then summarizes the problem even more. In the second half of verse 23, not only do these have the appearance of wisdom, but, he says, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These man-made regulations, they don't stop us indulging the flesh. Because what we do is we say, this is the problem, without addressing the problem in our heart, so our heart just moves to something else to sin with. And often what happens is is we bottle up those desires until they explode in some terrible way. And that is the story of man-made religion. They treat our problems on the surface. And they don't deal with the heart. And so Paul is going to develop this thought more and more in chapter 3. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to dive more and more into how do we actually change. If asceticism doesn't work, how do we actually go about putting off sin? And like I said, we'll, we'll talk about that. But the heart of it is, we need a new human nature. We need to be born again. The Bible point, or paints this bleak status of us as sinners. It says, hey, you're broken. You're born a sinner and you choose to sin. And the only thing that will change that has to come from outside of you, from God. All throughout the Old Testament, we read Israel. Israel, who had the laws of God, kept breaking the laws of God. So get this. The law of God himself is not enough to change your hearts. How much less would a man-made law be able to change your heart? God tells them again and again, That what Israel actually needs is a circumcised heart. That their heart must fundamentally change. And we get a promise of that in the coming of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31. God speaks through the prophet. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer will each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. 
what you need to note here is that God is saying something radical is about to shift. I made this covenant with Israel, but this new one coming is going to be fundamentally different. So it's not just a rehashing of the same covenant as some theologies argue. Right? I made this covenant with the people of Israel. This one is going to be fundamentally different. The old one wrote the law externally on tablets of stone. The new one is going to write God's law on the people's hearts. The old one told the people, hey, you need to know God, but it had no power to actually make them know God. The new one causes everyone in that covenant to actually fully know God. The old one foretold the forgiveness of sins through the sacrificial system. The new one actually accomplishes the forgiveness of their sins through Christ. And so, Christ is the substance. They are the shadows. He is all and in all, and he gives his people new hearts. This means that if you are in Christ today, you can obey in a way that Israel could not. We don't always obey, but you have a new heart. And because of his work, you can now grow in holiness. Man-made laws can't change your heart, but God through Christ has. And this new heart gives you new desires to obey God and to fulfill his law. And it's all rooted in his work. And that's where the tension immediately arises. Surely you're saying, Levi, if I have a new heart, why do I keep sinning? Why does this keep happening? Well, come back in the next couple weeks. We're going to talk about that. Paul goes into this. We call it the process of sanctification. That slowly but surely, you start putting to death or putting off your old heart, because you now have two hearts. You've got your old fleshly heart with its desires, and you've got a new heart that Christ has given you with new desires, and they're at war with one another. And the bad news is, they will be at war with one another until you die or Christ returns. The good news is, is that Christ has guaranteed that your new self will win by his power. So until Christ returns, we live in this tension that you have good desires and bad, but you are called to grow by feeding the new and putting to death the old. And this establishes something very, very important for us in growing in holiness. That holiness is not about having no desires, but it is about having the right desires. We call this the replacement principle. God doesn't just say, stop doing that, and just leave you hanging. He says, Don't do this. Instead, replace it with doing something new. It's not enough to just stop lying, but you have to put off your lying by telling the truth. It's not enough, Paul says in Ephesians 4, to stop stealing. But instead of stealing, now you must work hard and become generous and give to others. It's not enough to just not lust, but you must take those desires and rightly direct it towards your spouse. Replacement principle. Because God is not a cosmic killjoy who commands that you become some Buddhist monk who never has any desires. Your desires can be good, they can be bad, they can be somewhere in between. The problem is the abuse of our desires. And so we have set before us pretty much two paths, or two divergent errors before us. The first I mentioned is hedonism. There are no rules. Do whatever you want. Seek as much physical joy and pleasure as you can get in this life, no matter the cost to anyone else. 
brothers and sisters, the carnage of that ideology is all around you. We turn people, we turn things, or we, or we turn people in, in life into this product for us to consume for our own benefit, and then we toss people aside when we're done with them. It's everywhere. It's rampant. And the carnage is disgusting. We have to acknowledge that that is a real temptation, and we cannot go that way. But second, the second error, the more nefarious one for Christians, is that of asceticism. Attacking God and denying his goodness by denying the goodness of his creation. It looks religious, it looks holy, but it's not. And I fear this evil feeds the first one. Asceticism feeds hedonism, in my opinion, because it makes Christianity look boring, unrealistic, and unappealing. It makes God seem like he is miserly and doesn't want you to ever have any fun. It drives our children towards hedonism because they look at all the beauty of this world, they look at all the joys of this world, and they say, why wouldn't I pursue those things? And then we say, no, you can't pursue them, they're wrong. We drive them to hedonism. We have desires, and while they can be deformed, God created those desires to find some level of satisfaction in this creation. And that is something we must wrestle with. And so we have to reject phony holiness that instead say that God made this world and he made it full of good things. He made it beautiful. He made it full of joys and good food and physical delights. And that they find their truest meaning in that they reflect the goodness and the glory of our creator. Satan did not make these things look good. He only has the power to lie, steal, and deceive. So your favorite meal, the beauty of music, the beauty of the arts and entertainment, the physical enjoyment of recreation, hard work, marital intimacy, all of these are God-given delights to be received with thanksgiving. The holy man and the holy woman neither cling to those things nor do they ignore them. The holy man and the holy woman have smiles on their face and gratefulness in their hearts because they see the goodness of God everywhere. And so I pray that you would teach this to your children. Let me say it again. Don't think you can out-holy the Creator God. You simply cannot. Teach them to enjoy this physical world and the body that God has given them. And there's an entire movement in the world today that teaches children to hate their body. Right? And to try to change it with a surgery. Teach your children to enjoy the physical world that God has created and the body that God has given them because they come from God. Teach them that hedonism is ultimately empty because it says that that's all there is. So get as much of it as you can before you die. Let them see the beauty of what a godly marriage truly looks like. That your love for your spouse becomes attractive to them because it reflects God's glory. And when they start getting to that age, teach them the inherent goodness and the holiness of physical intimacy. And that when practiced by God's design is the greatest blessing in this life. For when they see the real thing in all of its glory, the counterfeits don't look as appealing anymore. But when you try to push those things out and say they're bad, they're only left to turn one way. And that's away from God. St. Augustine reminded us that holiness 
is found in rightly ordered, rightly carried out desires and affections. That is, you need to have a hierarchy of desires and affections. Some are more important than others. But your desires must become servants to you instead of you becoming a slave to them. Your desires must become servants to God, not the other way around. And when you desire these things rightly and you seek them justly, then you see real change. Not through asceticism, not through getting rid of all desires, but through seeking the the things of earth as God has intended them to be used. This is only possible because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming back so that you can have a new heart. And that you can put off the old and you can grow in the image of Christ day by day. And that in him, even though we are sometimes prone to wander, we have a new heart strengthened by the Spirit and the Word and guaranteed to win in the end. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that you have given us this world. You have given us these bodies, these vessels to be poured out in service to you. Lord, we ask that you would teach us to not turn this world into an idol to replace you and not to reject your goodness as it is found in your creation. Instead, Lord, may we see your glory through the goodness of what you have made and may we taste that goodness and may it train our minds and our hearts to constantly give thanks to you for all of it reflects your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.